0: Hi, and welcome back to the Northwestern Undergraduate Law Journal Speaker Series. My name is Davin, and I am a forum editor for the NULJ. I am here with my co-host, Jamie, the editor-in-chief of the journal. In this episode with Professor Xander Mize, a senior fellow at the Center for Ethics and the Rule of Law, Professor of International Human Rights Law at Georgetown University Law Center, and political partner of the Truman National Security Project, we discuss climate policy in the US and abroad, ethical government policies to take care of this, and possible pitfalls that could await these current efforts. Welcome to the Northwestern Undergraduate Law Journal Speaker Series. All right, uh, let's start off with what are some of the ways that you believe it is appropriate for the government to regulate corporate activity with regards to climate change?
1: This is a really interesting question. And if you had asked me this question five years ago, 10 years ago, I think that my answer would be different than it is now. And that's because now we have an environment in which companies are actually in some ways asking to be regulated companies are interested in climate now. Climate is a top issue with their investors, with the American public, and with uh, financial analysis. You have financial leaders such as the head of BlackRock, uh, one of the nation's leading investment entities, out there talking about the fact that Climate change is here, it is here to stay. And he has made very public uh, statements talking about how his firm is going to make investment decisions with environmental sustainability as a core goal. He's not alone. We see Bill Gates has released a book recently talking about climate change and the need for both corporations and governments uh, to work on issues of climate change, et cetera. So to your question, you have ways in which the government can create incentives for companies to engage in certain activity. And then you also have the ability of the government to create regulations that mandate that companies do certain things. And so those are two ways, carrots and sticks is how the government can interact with corporations. But right now you also, again, have this push from the public side and from the investment analysis side of even if the government doesn't stick or carrot, there are other reasons why corporations should be making changes uh, to be more sustainable in light of climate change. And let's face it, there is money to be made in new climate tech. So that's a whole other side of, of what may motivate corporations in this space. So you were talking about the role of government in climate change
2: policy. And that made me wonder what the Biden-Harris plan is to
1: regulate corporations and what they've done so far. Sure. Biden-Harris administration has a whole of government approach to the issue of climate change. They made this clear during the campaign for president. They made this clear after the election in naming John Kerry, for example, as going to be a special envoy on climate. In addition to other appointments they announced prior to the inauguration, And on day one of this administration, they said, we are going to rejoin the Paris Agreement. Following that, there was a very detailed executive order issued uh, by the administration, titled Executive Order on Tackling the Climate Crisis at Home and Abroad. And it is very comprehensive on steps it's going to take both in domestic policy and in foreign policy to address issues of climate change recognizing that climate change is a national security issue and that security is defined in security of person and uh, in more traditional concepts of security that we think about. While the order didn't necessarily use that particular language, I think you can see it in the order. And I will say, you know, this is my approach to national security. When I talk about climate change as being a national security issue, I'm always thinking about it in light of the fact that Security contains what I call the four Ds. So you have hard defense, which is what many people think of traditionally when they think national security, right? But you also have diplomacy, development, and democratic governance. And those are the four components of national security in my eyes. You look at this order and you look at the policies that this administration has been articulating so far through its actions, through its words, and and, and, uh, statements of its Um, appointees and folks in the administration, and you see that kind of reflection because there is a lot of talk about how climate change is going to be part of our foreign policy, for example. When we engage in foreign policy, when we engage in international uh, relations and discussions, climate is going to be part of those discussions, okay? It is also part of development, uh, for sure. You see that in this order You see particular mention of um, the uh, uh, Development Finance Corporation, USAID, the importance of including climate in strategic financing arrangements, how the United States government domestically is also going to make climate part of what it funds when it invests in things like this. So you see this balance of both domestic and um, foreign activity. You also see in this order, and I think this is one of the beautiful examples of this administration's intersectional approach to these issues and climate does affect all aspects of our society, economy and uh, government structures. You see them talking about issues of environmental justice and climate justice. And so this goes to that interaction between government and the citizens and people that it represents, that to me is the democratic governance piece of security. So that type of framework, that um, whole of government framework is essential for a crisis like this, that again, truly impacts every aspect of society.
0: In terms of the direct domestic effect of these types of international agreements, what can people expect to see uh, that's different as a result of international climate agreements in terms of domestic policy and uh, domestic laws?
1: That's a really great question, and it offers me an opportunity to dispel some myths about the Paris Agreement. So when it comes to the Paris Agreement, the United States and the state parties have made a certain commitments to what they are going to do with regard to dialogue on climate, with what they are going to do. Um, do with regard to taking certain actions towards trying to limit carbon emissions, take other steps to keep the global climate, sorry, the global temperature uh, rise uh, at under two degrees Celsius. So as part of this, the United States in rejoining the Paris Agreement is going to have to submit plans and a target for what they are going to hit with regard to their carbon emissions. So, yes, the United States has made a commitment it shall do this. But the United States sorry, but the international community is not telling the United States exactly what it needs to do domestically on a b c or d. Okay? So, from the US standpoint, the US is going to undertake certain uh, studies and investigations domestically and come up with domestic plans as to what it's going to do. And if you look at President Biden's recent executive order on climate, you see how the foundations for that are being laid. He's calling upon different federal offices to um, submit certain materials within 90 days, 120 days. There's, a, there's an assortment of activities going on. But that's part of these first steps in, in the actions of the US, whereby then we are going to submit uh, to the international entity our pledges for what we hope to hit as targets. And this is gonna be part of an ongoing commitment for all of the state parties to Paris. Over time, we're gonna hit this target, hopefully by this date, hopefully hit this other target. So this may or may not happen, but each country needs to pledge to try and make these things happen. So when it comes to the effect domestically, that then becomes part of domestic policy and the usual workings within the United States of how domestic policy gets made. And given that this new administration has made so clear that climate is not only part of international policy, but domestic policy, and is gonna be woven into so many different parts of what we see coming through the economy, coming through health, coming through transportation, the list goes on and on. Um, You know, we will see some changes here, but it's not that the international community is telling us exactly what to do on those changes we have the sovereignty, we have the independence and authority to make those decisions for ourselves, but we have made an international commitment to uh, make a pledge to make uh, changes that we determine ourselves.
2: Thank you for your in-depth answer on our international relations policy. I was wondering, can you expand on which countries should be our targets for climate diplomacy?
1: Uh, can I just say everyone? Um, no. Uh, <laughs> Look, of course, one of the countries that we need to engage with is China. China is the number one emitter of carbons. Um, it, you know, if it is not engaging in constructive uh, climate action, it's going to thwart the ability of the other countries to address climate in the way that needs to be done. So yes, the United States should engage China But this isn't just necessarily a direct one-for-one, let's talk about climate, right? We have to engage China as part of larger policy with regard to China. There are so many issues that we need to discuss with China. We've got trade. We've got um, intellectual property. We have uh, different security issues, whether it be the South China Sea, whether it be China's interest in the Arctic region. You know, there are all of these different issues to be explored with China. And in doing that, we then have opportunities to inject climate policy, climate discussions as part of those larger discussions. So just as uh, when we historically engage China and through varying different programs and uh, avenues, we may or may not bring up issues of human rights, Uh, So, too, you know, climate can be involved to different degrees in, in our ongoing discussions with them. But China actually also raises another set of countries that I think it's really important for the United States to engage with on climate. And that relates to the fact that China for many years now has been engaged in something that it calls the Belt and Road Initiative, where it is involved in foreign direct investment, infrastructure investment, uh, and trade investment in countries across the globe with a desire to build this trade network and trade partnerships that go all the way from the continent of Africa, across Asia to China, and then back around over uh, as the the Northwest Passage melts over the Arctic and back around, okay? So this this is our belt of the planet and the roads across the land uh, to make this happen. But as part of this, for example, you have the China, Chinese Development Bank um, has been established. And that has been part of a lot of activities either directly from the Chinese government or from Chinese state-owned companies or other um, uh, Chinese associated companies investing in the African continent. Uh, and the United States has not been as engaged in Africa in recent years as it could have been. And so when we look at, okay, who should the US be engaging with on climate? I see it as a great opportunity For the United States, as it thinks to its larger foreign policy goals, uh, and of course the fact that this administration has emphasized climate as part of our foreign policy goals, thinking about, okay, as we re-engage with countries on the African continent, and we think about how we're going to do foreign direct investment, think about how we're going to do democratic development, other, other pieces of our development and economic engagement, can we incorporate climate in there? And we see in the most recent, this recent executive order from the president, um, some hints of that. Uh, I'm very glad that he agrees with me. Uh, <laughs> so you see that, that, that there's direct mention of, hey, development offices and entities within the US government, could you please go think about climate and get, you know, report back on how this can be incorporated into your work. And so I see that as one of the, the great ways of opportunity uh, for, for the United States to engage other countries. Plus, um, you know, all of this builds to, uh, I think, rebuilding and strengthening United States' reputation with regard to making international commitments um, and, and, and our greater foreign policy goals.
0: Yeah, I'm actually uh, very glad that you uh, brought up Chinese activity in Africa, um, because one of the concerns there has been, as you know, IP theft uh, by Huawei of African communications. And I was wondering, considering that uh, China accounts for up to $600 billion of IP theft from the US, how you think it's best to go about green tech collaboration, especially while considering climate as a matter of national security?
1: I want to answer your question, but I need to ask you a question first. When you say green tech collaboration, Are you talking about how to engage with China directly at a partnership on green tech, or are you thinking something else?
0: Uh, Both directly and, uh, I guess, in a sense, indirectly through company collaboration. But as China's companies are largely state-owned, that sort of introduces a governmental aspect to it that I think would otherwise not be there.
1: Yes, and then you have the additional issue of if you are a company operating in China, there, and that's a perhaps a topic for a separate podcast as to the amount of information you need to share with the state, which then, yes, the, the IP issue is raised. To rephrase your question, if I may, I think that. There are opportunities for collaboration, cooperation, and correlation. We do not have to necessarily work with another entity in a way where we are sharing all the IP secrets, but we can still work together in a correlated way in that we are not obstructing the development of tech of someone else. Okay. Because the other thing is that when it comes to building a better mousetrap, there's not one better mousetrap. And if anything, we want to promote multiple entities working on multiple solutions, because hopefully as we see with the COVID vaccine, for instance, right? You can have many different ways to approach a problem. And the best news is when all of them work. So let's not put all of our eggs in one basket. Let's create an environment in which different countries, different companies, private and public sectors can feel free to engage in the research and experimentation necessary for the scientific innovations that we need for this climate adaptation and we need for climate resilience. Okay. So when it goes to green tech in particular, because I do wanna come back to this question, One of the issues that we've seen in the United States with regard to policy is that should we have subsidies in the U.S., for instance, for solar panels or not? There have been attempts in the past for there to be um, green energy related developments, but for us to build them here is quite expensive. So there have been uh, projects that have built this tech in China. This raises, this goes to your point, I think, about what happens if you know there is the, the IP theft. Well, we also see, and I'm gonna use COVID example again, uh, when it comes to necessary equipment like our PPE, right? When we discover that it's no longer manufactured in the United States and it's manufactured in China, and oh no, what happens if we have a trade problem because of a pandemic and we can't uh, get the equipment? I would argue that when it comes to green green tech this goes to critical infrastructure in the United States and it goes to the larger issue of how much of that should we control at home or at least have a base for manufacturing at home such that in case of crisis we do have the skills and the wherewithal to be able to work on these things ourselves so I think that this would be an example so instead of Always manufacturing our green tech in China or someplace outside the United States. I think that part of how we need to address this is to make sure we have that skill set and that capacity here at home. And we see this in the policy articulations of the current administration. And we see some of this in this executive order, because not only is there talk about the defense side and the diplomacy side and the development financing side. But there's a whole section of this order that talks about jobs. And new uh, part of uh, the economic development domestically, the opportunities that we have domestically with regard to climate has to do with training Americans to be engaged in this sector and to make sure some jobs are here at home. So this is an opportunity to get two birds with one stone. Right? We have economic issues here in the United States. We do have infrastructure in in issues in the United States with regard to our, our roads and our bridges, which also have a climate component, certainly our energy system, as we have learned this week with regard to the extreme weather events in the southern United States. So we can, through federal policy, decide that we want to incentivize having this ability at home to build this tech.
2: In your answer, you really stress the importance of federal policy in preventing climate disasters. Are you concerned that many current climate change proposals get rolled back if Democrats lose a future election? And how can we prevent this from happening?
1: So you're right that when it comes to federal policy, a lot of that may depend on who the executive is if it's done by executive order. So I have been talking so far in this podcast a lot about this executive order, but executive orders can be undone by subsequent executives. If you want resilient, the word of the day, uh, legislation and policy, you want multi-branch engagement. So Congress has the Clean Water Act, the Clean Air Act, for instance, and through these, this is how we a lot of environmental regulation gets promulgated, but it's backed up by that law. So a lot of what is being called for through this executive order is possible through uh, the, prom- the regulations that come from the Clean Water Act and the Clean Air Act. However, there is litigation pending in the United States and there will continue to be some where companies, uh, in some cases, uh, state governments are challenging the ability of the federal government to promulgate in this way under those acts, They're challenging the limits, trying to see where, where are the outside boundaries of these acts. So yes, there is a necessity potentially for Congress to engage in additional legislation at the federal level. Also, and this is really important, And dare I say something that they don't teach you in law school is that all the laws in the world are all well and good, but it takes money to implement them. And so if you do not have the appropriations to to enact a policy, it's really hard to enact that policy. Uh, And I'll just give you one example that's totally not climate related, which is that President Obama wanted to close Guantanamo Bay, the detention facility at Guantanamo Bay, uh, um, but, Congress passed a law that said not one cent could be used to transfer any prisoners off of Guantanamo Bay. So guess how you then therefore cannot close the detention facility at Guantanamo Bay, okay? Same when it comes to environmental protections um, and uh, some of these climate policies that are coming through from the executive. You'll also see in the executive order, it says subject to appropriations in many places or subject to, to funding or current allocations. So there is that tension. Uh, But as much as I've been talking about the federal level, because that is the the new kid on the block in this, the newest news, it is the the local levels that have been at the forefront of action on climate for years now. Um, And we see this at the state levels, the city levels, and the, the local town levels even. The United States may have withdrawn from the Paris Agreement in recent years. But when that happened, a great number of municipalities and local entities said, you know what? We're gonna create our own plans to try and meet some standards under Paris. And you saw US governors, US mayors of major cities still going to meetings related to the Paris Agreement, meeting with uh, government leaders from other countries, still engaging in climate policy and in trying to advance uh, climate adaptation and resilience through those mechanisms, even if our federal government wasn't doing so. right? Even when the federal government was engaging, you saw local entities doing it. So this is encouraging because even if there is a change at the federal level uh, in a political party or in in otherwise in, in policy, you're seeing at this point, states and those local leaders at the, I said, the municipal level and city level, they are already on this. Plus multinational corporations are on this and corporations in some cases have you know larger uh, value and annual revenue than the GDPs of some countries. So when they are also engaging in it, it's really hard for there to be such a turnaround um, at a national level.
2: In your answer, you mentioned the necessity for climate adaptation. Can you expand on what you
1: mean by that? So I realize I've been using the terms climate adaptation, climate resilience, climate response, and I haven't really defined these. So let me take a minute to do that. When we think about climate adaptation or climate response, this is the oh goodness, things have happened, we now must adapt, right? We are being a responsive gesture to this. When we think about climate resilience, we are thinking about longer term strategies. We are thinking not just about, we need a better hurricane fund, or we need a better, uh, we need to repair, the tarmacs that have now shifted in Alaska because of melting permafrost, and we to adapt to those changes in the landscape and infrastructure, that kind of thing. We are thinking one step further. We are thinking, okay, in the future, given that certain things are going to happen, how can we be using different structures, different tech, different, um, not just infrastructures in a physical sense, but also, different human strategies, different strategic strategies of how we deploy persons to be able to better respond to future events and to not be as affected by those future climate events. So given a right now example that we are seeing with regard to the extreme weather occurring in the American South right now, we see how this is stressing the power grid, particularly in Texas, okay? So if we're going to take these terms and apply them to that situation, we should think, ah, climate resilience, resilience in this power grid in order to be better structured to deal with future incidents like this. So that's, Having a more of a variety of energy sources, making sure that the grid is weather resilient to the extreme temperatures, uh, making sure that there is um, backstop plans in, in the event of a crisis or something like this, right? So that it is more in the literal definition of resilient resilient to those
0: variations. Um. Just to return briefly to the idea of uh, multi-branch engagement, do you have any concerns about the ability of the executive uh, to unilaterally withdraw from treaties as per like Goldwater v. Carter or when Bush withdrew from the anti-ballistic missile treaty? Because it, it seems to me that other countries might perceive it as an instance where a new president means that all treaties are sort of suspect should they become politicized?
1: There is a real danger that in the United States being seen to oscillate in its stance on particular international issues, that we are a country of do what I say, not what I do. And so much of international relations is built on reputation and built on demonstrating through your actions. And traditionally the United States for all of our warts, and we have them, was nonetheless known as a country that for instance, wouldn't sign a treaty unless we really meant it, right? Wouldn't, so, wouldn't engage in, in an agreement unless we knew we could follow every letter of it. That's difficult now because we have sort of done backseas, there are traditionally no back in treaties. <laughs> That's not how this is supposed to work. So this is part of the challenge, the real challenge, really hard challenge that this current administration has coming in, is to re-engage internationally and to repair some of that uh, damage that has been caused. but. This is possible, but it needs to be paired with both the words and the actions. And I think that is how we have to address this issue. And it is not a quick fix. This is not something that you snap your fingers and it's all better. It takes years of repair, but we can do it. And one of the ways to do it, and it's about climate, it's about a lot of things, though right, is looking both at home and abroad. This is not just about abroad, but what are we doing at home? And so on climate, the fact that we are having to make policies domestically to implement our plans for our hitting our goals internationally that we've said with Paris, right? That gives us the opportunity to say, hey, here's what we're doing. Here is our example. So we have actions to match our words, okay? When it comes to human rights, right? At home, we don't usually talk in U.S. vocabulary domestically about human rights. You tend to talk about civil rights, but civil rights and human rights, this is, these things go together. And as 2020 has shown us, reminded us, I, you know, this is not new, it's a reminder. We have issues we, that we need to address here. But if we take actions domestically, it helps us internationally. It helps us be able to take steps uh, internationally for security, right? So this is partly why civil rights, human rights is national security. If we have security of person here, it makes it easier for us to have security and in our engagement with others. And one of the, in my opinion, one of the beauties of the United States is we have recognized when we make mistakes that we are not perfect. We strive for the more perfect union. That implies that we are not perfect yet. And just as it takes a strong person to admit when you make a mistake, it takes a strong country to acknowledge when you do that too. And so we're at a turning point here. We have an opportunity to say, you know what, we have made mistakes, but look how we're going to fix them and look how we're going to try to strive to be that more perfect. And I think that is the path for us to um, help rebuild and strengthen, because we have it here, but to strengthen rule of law here at home and rule of law abroad.
2: Great, I think that's um, great last words for all the future lawyers listening to this podcast. Um, and I just wanted to wrap up and ask, since we are an undergraduate student-run podcast, do you have any last words on law school and finding your path with a law degree?
1: Normally when I'm asked this question, and should I go to law school? My first answer is no. And I will tell you why. It's because law school is very expensive. It's a mortgage, essentially, unless you get a a scholarship. It's a very expensive endeavor, but it's not just about the money. It's about the time and dedication to it. And it's not something I think that people should go into lightly. Those who love it, love it, but it is a calling. And in other English speaking countries, rather than say that they took the bar or they you know, got admitted to the bar or something like this, the phrase that is used is called to the bar. And I'm reminded of in many religious orders where they will refer to that they were called to the priesthood or called into some kind of service. And I think it's interesting that that verb gets used in that way, right? Because when you're a lawyer, this is more than just a nine to five job. It's hard to take your lawyer hat on. You are a lawyer. It is part of who you are. And it is wonderful and fabulous and makes you sometimes frustrating when you have conversations with people. (laughs) You may get accused of lawyering them and you won't mean it, but it'll happen. And, it is a wonderful way to learn how to analyze problems and how to look at the world and how to fix problems, uh, which is one of the things that I started to realize in law school, but very much learned you know, when out in the world practicing is the, how this all works, right? How the sausage is made, but with the magic skills that you learn in law school, you can help figure out how to fix problems and how to, design systems and policies so that these problems don't happen. Um, but it is not something to be gone into lately. so with that I then encourage those who want to go to go because yes it, you know it, it really is is wonderful but if you're if you're stressing about I want to go to law school, should I be a pre-law major or should I have taken the certain types of courses do not stress about that. That is something that I would say, um, because what's important is, is, you know, look when you're in undergrad, this is one of your last opportunities to, to study an area that you want to study. Um, when you get to that, that's outside of law or law related, because when you get to law school, you'll have some opportunities for electives, but. Um, you know, a lot of it is you take what you're, what you're told. You may not have dreamed all your life of taking torts, but you're going to take torts, right? So um, you know, do what you love in that specialty in an undergrad. And maybe there is a way that that connects to your law life later, um, but what's more important to prepare you for a good legal career are things like, are you a good writer? And I know everyone tells you that before you go to law school and tells you that in law school, but I assure you that if you are a good writer, you are a very valuable part of the legal profession. And this will help you get a job, keep a job, be successful in your job, right? That's one example. Um, Another is if you want to um, do anything with international work, take time in undergrad, to do those language skills and learn those language skills because it is really hard to have any time to do that while in law school. And time after that is even smaller, right? So undergrad's the time to do it. If you've got language skills that you can learn in undergrad, oh, do that, do that, do that, do that. I say this as someone who did international practice for many years, continues to be involved in international work, undergrad's the time to do it. So that would be, my, my one specific suggestion of a class to take is that if, if languages are your thing uh, or international laws of interest, then to do language in undergrad. But also let me be clear, uh, we are an international country. <laughs> and so even if you never intend to work outside the United States, we have so many folks in the United States that speak a language other than English and you will be very valuable to those communities and be better able to represent them because you will have better understanding of them if you can speak their languages. So even if you don't wanna do international law, languages are still very helpful when it comes to legal practice.
0: All right, thank you so much for your time. Um, Really appreciated it. It was a great, really interesting talk. You're
1: welcome. This has been a lot of fun. I hope to do it again soon. Thank you.